Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Queer Talk, a queer podcast that brings you a regular dose of positive news stories and fabulous interviews. Hi. Hi. Today we're bringing you a very special episode of Queer Talk. If you weren't already a fan of our show, we're going to have to ask you to pledge your allegiance today. I like what you did there. We are joined by the brilliant George Takei. George Takei is an American actor, author and activist who you will know from the likes of Star Trek, Mulan, Kubo and the Two Strings and so many more brilliant, brilliant films and TV shows. George has won a host of awards for his activism, including the LGBT Humanist Award and the Glad Vito Russo Award, which every year is presented to an openly LGBT media professional who has made a significant difference in promoting equality for the LGBT community. We are blessed and honoured to have you with us today, George. Welcome to Queer Talk. Welcome. Well, thank you very much. I'm the one that feels honored. I've been doing interviews all day long, and this is the end <laughs> of that day. So you are the picker-uppers, the re-energizers for me. Perfect. Perfect. We, we just won Best Dressed Muff Scene, which I'm very grateful for. Have we? We can take that. We can take that. It must have been your lovely jumper. <laughs> <laughs> I try my best. I try my best. So, George, your musical allegiance premiered um, in 2012 to Fantastic Reviews and again in Broadway in 2015. You must be incredibly proud of what you've achieved with the musical. We are proud and so excited that we're bringing it to London because I'm an Anglophile, son of an Anglophile. My father loved all things English. He was particularly uh, knowledgeable about the royal line and I was born three weeks before the coronation of George VI. He thought it was a sign. uh, It was uh, so a sign that I would be born at that point. And so hence my name. I'm a Japanese American named after an English king. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant, brilliant. You're one of our own. (laughs) I am, And and I come here regularly. And but at long last, I get to to trod the boards in London now. I'm very excited about that. So the musical is going to be at Charing Cross Theatre for 13 weeks. So you must be very excited you get to stay here for a long time. What is kind of your favourite parts of British culture? Theatre. I'm a theatre person. I'm an actor. The the most exciting thing is uh, the theatre of uh, Great Britain. I used to say Hmm. I'm an Anglophile, but I uh, did a play... Uh, in the Edinburgh Fringe, and I, you know, after after the theater, we all relax, wind down at a pub, and in uh, those uh, Scottish pubs, they call them wee drums. But and the 
impact is not we at all. <laughs> I said, I love Edinburgh. I love the people of Edinburgh. I love the landscape, your architecture. I love everything about Edinburgh. I'm a confirmed Anglophile. Oh no, did that, that, that did not go down well. <laughs> and I was about on, in, in danger of being uh, tarred and feathered and sent south of the border. I learned I am a Britannophile. Okay, okay. Nice save, nice save. Yes. So Spencer here is from Wales. Do you like Wales as well? I love Wales. Yeah. I love Irish. In fact, I made an extraordinary discovery with my co-star in my very first feature film while I was still a theater student at UCLA in Los Angeles. A casting director saw me in that play and plucked me out of that into my first feature film starring Richard Burton, the great British Shakespearean actor. I was over the moon about it, and particularly because all my scenes were with Richard Burton, and it began with uh, a shoot on location in Alaska. It was a, a movie about Alaska, uh, Ice Palace, and uh, we filmed on location at a uh, fishing village in a very uh, desolate part of uh, Alaska by what they called it the Narrows but it was a wide, I mean, it looked like a huge lake to me. And we, uh, our, our setting was a cannery there. And he was an English uh, immigrant to Alaska. And I was a Chinese immigrant to Alaska working in a fish cannery right there uh, off the pier. And uh, all my scenes were with this fellow cannery worker. But what I love most uh, about that experience was I, there were there are these uh, setup periods, the boring periods between one setup after another, and we actors sit sit in these comfy uh, set side chairs and we chit chat. And I was chit chatting with Richard Burton, me, a theater student from UCLA. Still, I was over the moon, and I peppered him with questions about how, what was it like playing Hamlet early years, or what was it like uh, working with um, the American uh, queen of Broadway, uh, Helen Hayes. And Richard just loved talking about himself. So we were a perfect fit, and he was regaling me. And in those conversations, I learned that English was not his first language. This great Shakespearean actor uh, was not speaking in English uh, when he was uh, very young. He was Welsh. Amazing. And he regaled me. I mean, just give him a cue and he will go off on it. He started quoting uh, Dylan Thomas in Welsh. I didn't understand Welsh at all, but that stentorian voice reciting in Welsh was like a music. I don't yeah. understand Italian, but I enjoy Italian opera. And that's what it was like for me, a student actor working with this legend of uh, not only Britain, but now becoming a, a movie star in, a, in the United States. What a wonderful may, a way to make my debut into feature motion pictures in Hollywood. <laughs> A hundred percent. So there's there's still hope for me. I might become a Hollywood star one day. One day. You're very cute. That mustache <laughs> of yours is. I, I think that's going to have to go. 
Okay, okay. That can go, George. Whatever you want, whatever you need me to do to become famous, I'm ready. And you have to uh, get rid of uh, your. Yours is particularly prominent. Mine is, yeah. And people like to see the whole face. That's what they fall in love with. I'm going to have to tell everyone that George Takei has told me to get rid of my moustache. <laughs> I hope you'll agree with me. Yeah. Listen, whatever you tell us to do, we will do at this point. Um, we're, follow we're following your lead. You haven't made it this far in your career for us to ignore your advice. Influencing you, you <laughs> aspire young actors from Britain. You're the modern-day modern day influencer, George. They're still making Star Trek content, so if we get rid of our moustaches, Spencer, we might be in the new Star oh, Trek. Yeah. We, we could be in, uh, in the galaxies. You're, you're <laughs> both heavenly bodies. <laughs> There we go. Okay, so you talked about kind of entering your acting career back then when you were a student. So I do want to rewind a little bit, not that far back, but upon doing some of my pre-show digging, I found a quote that you shared around coming out. You, I'm putting air quotes now because coming out is a very um, vague, big, crazy subject in our community, as we all know and understand. You said, it's not really coming out which suggests opening a door and stepping through. It's more like a long, long walk through what began as a narrow corridor that starts to widen. Now, 17 years later, how would you describe that corridor today, metaphorically? And uh, will we as a society ever reach the end of that corridor, do you think? Well, I've uh, been closeted most of my adult life. So the corridor was very, very long. I was about nine or 10 when I started to feel differently about my classmates in uh, grammar school, I thought Bobby Corral had the sweetest smile. And he had these long, lush eyelashes and that smile, that those teeth. I mean, they, they just melted me. And I realized the other guys didn't feel that way. And there was another athletic kid, very good looking. His name was Richard Montana. This is after our imprisonment during the Second World War. We were impoverished by the government. They took everything my parents had. Our, uh, their bank account was frozen. And we were put in these barbed wire prison camps simply because we looked like this. We're Americans of Japanese ancestry, but we look just like the people that bombed Pearl Harbor. And America went his, more hysteria was uh, what swept through the, the country. And the president of the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, signed an executive order ordering all Japanese Americans rounded up. Uh, the Japanese Americans on the West Coast, 120,000 of us approximately, and imprisoned in barbed wire prison camps. We had nothing to do with Pearl Harbor. We're Americans, except we looked like this, different from other Americans. We were at war with Germany and Italy, but Italian Americans and German Americans were not subjected to this roundup. And they looked like the rest of America. We looked different. And yeah. so racial prejudice was what uh, put us in, in these camps. I am a garrulous, rambling speaker, and I kind of uh, rambled away from your question. No, that's okay. You were talking about they seized all your assets. And they, they, they let us free, but that's still right after the war, and the hatred was still intense. And we didn't have money to be, be able to move back into our own uh, neighborhood. Our first home was on Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles. And 
Then uh, we were there for a couple of months, and then my father found a place uh, in an all-Mexican-American barrio, as we call it, Mexican-American community. And so all my uh, classmates were Mexican-Americans, and I speak Spanish today thanks to that experience. So these boys that I was noticing, this good-looking athletic guy, Richard Montana, I thought came from a very poor family because he was wearing either his big brother's hand-me-down or his own clothes, and he had grown out of. His t-shirt was too tight on him, and his trousers were tight on him. And when he hunkered down to play marbles, his t-shirt ran up and his trousers ran down. And I saw the uh, decolletage fall <laughs> on his back. And that was exciting. And I was the only one looking around. None of the other boys uh, acted like. So I was beginning to understand that I was different in more ways than just my face, which got us in prison. And I didn't want want to be different because being different will punish you. We were put in a prison camp. And so as I grew older and realized I was getting more and more attracted to cute boys and I didn't want to be that. I felt very alone. And so already my acting instinct was coming on. I acted like the other boys. And in middle school, um, one of my classmates, Monica, she was a nice girl. I liked her, very friendly, but she was starting to blossom forth full, buxom, premature femininity. And the other boys went crazy. Wow, Monica's hot. Look at them boobs. Oh, wow. I couldn't understand what they were talking about. <laughs> and because she was my, I uh, danced with her at the school dances, and they would ask me, How did her boobs feel on your chest? I said, Nice. I like Monica. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I, I was on two different planes from the other guy. I said, I want to be like the other guy. And I joined them and said, yeah, Monica's hot. And they would agree and, and they want, they'd want to know more about what it felt like to dance with her. I realized that I needed to keep acting because I saw there was another kid who they called a sissy, who was more, he couldn't act too well, I guess. Uh, more feminine. Expressed. And, yep. and they beat him up in the back of the school. And I didn't want to be, be uh, beaten up. So I began to act more and more like the guys. And when they started dating, I dated girls like Monica. And when my buddy wanted to double date, I double dated. But to be honest, I was more interested in my buddy than in my date. <laughs> but, so I, I, I was pretty successful at fooling the others, the world. And then I realized that there are more people that felt like me. I wasn't the only one. So my narrow corridor was starting to widen just a little bit. And as I continued that walk down the the corridor, occasionally a little light would slip through and see that there were others who felt like me and were acting macho just like me. Mm. And I got to know them and my corridor became wider, became friends. And as you go through life, you... uh, get more set in that kind of way of living, a yeah. Yeah. Uh, secret life 
And I was gregarious. I, uh, I became active in uh, student government, made a lot of friends, ran for student body president, became elected. So I was the guy that everybody liked as well as I liked them. I selectively liked just good looking, cute boys. <laughs> <laughs> and I spent most of my adult life like that. Little bits of light coming in and more light, a window that brought in more light. And I, I became very curious as a teenager about my childhood imprisonment. And I had many after-dinner discussions. Why were we put in those camps? And why, after we were let out of the camps, did we have to live in that horrible place called Skid Row with all those people staggering about or lying on the sidewalk? And uh, my father started explaining that to me. So when we were incarcerated, I really had, I was too young to understand what that was all about. But I was beginning to understand more, not just about the cute boys that I didn't talk to, but about our larger society. And my father said, we live in a democracy and the ideals of democracy are noble ideals equal justice rule of law due process when you're arrested you have the right to know the reason why you're being arrested and then you have the right to challenge that arrest in a court of law and then the uh, accuser has to provide evidence of what you're being accused of but that's due process when we were rounded up there was none of that no charge no trial, no due process. It was an unjust uh, imprisonment. And my father said, in a democracy, those are ideals, but those words have meaning. And when people are filled with fear and insecurity, then they act ir irrationally. And good citizens who cherish those ideals have to engage in the process of government and give meaning to those ideals. And so I became active in student government. And uh, my father, before I could even vote, he uh, took me with him to uh, volunteer in a presidential campaign. Political campaign has elements that uh, appeal to a theatrically oriented kid. There's excitement, working with everybody stuffing envelopes and making signs to carry at demonstrations and it builds and builds to uh, a climax and it's exhilaration joy or black tragedy and in that campaign uh, governor stevenson did not win so it was black tragedy and so that's how i uh, became an activist in the political arena as well as uh, someone who used my acting talents to keep uh, who i really was secret yeah and those are really good values to have instilled in you from your father um because democracy is as we know these days it doesn't always work but you have to participate you have to be a part of it to make the world kind of work in a better way for everyone and I was going to say, as you were talking about the, the internment camps, um, you were a really young age at the time, weren't you? You were around five or six. And it was just like a very dark and untold part of American history, which you are thankfully putting a light to. And that's what allegiance is all about. The musical that we're bringing to London. Our allegiance to America, despite the fact that we were American citizens, born, educated mm. and reared, uh, under American democracy, but they, because of our pace, they yeah. didn't think we were faithful or patriotic to our country. Yeah, it was basically racial hysteria 
Exactly. And there must have been a lot of deeply emotional memories that you have there. And I was wondering how you feel when you relive some of these experiences, especially on stage so publicly. Well, after I came out, it's been, you know, here I was as an activist uh, engaged in the civil rights movement for African-Americans or uh, the Vietnam War and for peace in uh, in the Vietnam War. And so I all these other issues, but the one issue that was so personal, I was silent about. But what was happening, particularly after Stonewall, other activists on my issue were out there sacrificing their jobs when I was protecting my job opportunities. They, they're sacrificing their careers, some of them their families, and out there fighting for my cause. So being closeted as other punishments. One of them was guilt. They're out there campaigning, advocating, getting beaten, being jailed for my issue. And I'm silent on it. And so not only was I dealing with all these other issues that I was dealing with, but I had this horrible guilt of my silence. And then that god-awful period of age came and friends who suddenly got sick started losing weight drastically and before you knew it they were gone i went to some of their to visit them in the hospitals the treatment that they were getting in the hospitals was terrible yeah. one of my friends they it was the unknown uh, disease and so they it wasn't in the regular ward they gave me a room number. It was a large broom closet all by himself. And the nurses were chit-chatting outside when he was shivering inside on that bed. He was cold. I said, Randy, are you cold? Would you like a blanket? And he, he just nodded while he was shivering in, in this fetal position. I went out there enraging at, at, the, at the nurses, said, you have a sick man there and he's shivering. Why are you just standing here uh, chit-chatting? Get him a, a blanket. And what, mm. the three of them suddenly gave me this, this dirty look as, as if I were the crazy one and, and, and sauntered off. And one nurse came back and with a blanket. I grabbed it from him and put it over Randy with tears in my eyes and covered him up. And I said, Dan, Randy, I'll be back. But he had passed before I got back to him. I mean, that kind of experience that widens the corridor a bit more, but I still wanted to protect my career. And I was silent, but I spoke with my checkbook. I made financial contributions to AIDS causes. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for 
for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's all of these experiences that you've had throughout your life which motivate you to be the activist you are now. So when there was the veto against same-sex marriage, you spoke up very loudly about that. Uh, and also recently with the don't say gay legislations in Florida. So like all of these experiences have formed who you are as a person now who has this deep motivation and drive to kind of put a light on some of the injustices that have happened to other Americans like yourself? Well, I'll tell you what got me out at age 68. I've been closeted and silent, but writing checks. But these others who were active in the uh, gay liberation mm. movement were making progress. Society was beginning to understand. And in 2003, Massachusetts, through their state Supreme Court, got marriage equality. That was a landmark event. And two years later, in 2005, in California, our state legislature, not the Supreme Court, but the people's representatives, the state Senate, and the state assembly passed the marriage equality bill. Two coasts, East Coast and now on the West Coast. It was a landmark event, or it was almost a landmark event. It needed one more signature, that of our governor, who happened to be a movie star, Arnold Schwarzenegger. When he ran for governor's for the governor's seat, he ran by saying to the public, I'm from Hollywood. I've worked with gays and lesbians. Some of my friends are gays and lesbians. It was campaign rhetoric. And I I, I was skeptical. But some of my gay friends said, he, he's one of us. He says he's got gay friends. And some of my gay friends did vote for him. But I didn't, didn't trust. He was a right-wing Republican. So when the marriage equality bill finally uh, was approved by the legislature, the bill went to the governor's uh, desk. And when it landed on his desk, he vetoed it. I was raging. And I said to Brad, I've had a good enough career. I'm ready. I'm ready to sacrifice my career. And I came out and spoke to the press for the first time as a gay man and blasted Arnold Schwarzenegger's veto. And I uh, partnered with the human rights campaign that set up a, a nationwide speaking tour for me. And I, from that point on, I've been very vocal. I mean, it's, it's brilliant to see. We have these conversations a lot with people on different levels of kind of fame and success and, you know, people from our community and a message we put across quite often is you can't help others until you're able to kind of get yourself into a good enough place or a solid enough place. But there's also for everybody, I think that one kind of action or one thing or situation that happens that fuels you and you go enough is enough. Too many people are being hurt. Too many people are being lost. You know, too many people are lying to us or, you know, not looking out for us. I have to do something. And like you said, you've been doing work, you know, you, you say silently, but uh, money also speaks volumes. That's just the way the world is and, and does have a huge impact. But to finally stand up and say something, it's like, right, you know, now it's my time to do that. And you were willing to sacrifice your career on that. And 
as you can see, I'm not saying that there hasn't been uh, an impact from standing up and being vocal, but you're still incredibly successful and hugely respected by the community for doing so. I say maybe more so. What I fear the most, but I girded my loins and prepared myself for it, was to find another way of living my life. But yeah. the, the reverse happened. My career blossomed even more. I was doing get one guest shot on the uh, TV show after another, Will and Grace, Big Bang Theory. Uh, not as a character, but as me. Well, it wasn't really me, but the, but the character I played was named George Takei, and he was gay. <laughs> so gay George Takei was getting employed one <laughs> after the other. So we can never predict your future. You don't know what twists and turns life will, uh, opening that door will uh, bring to you. Yeah, Spencer and I were talking about how you did cameos on Futurama before the, we started the recording. You've just elevated yourself to icon status. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. I, re- I remember seeing you, I remember seeing you in an episode of Scooby-Doo. I've, I've literally, you've, you've, been, you've been there in the back of my mind um, for, for my entire upbringing. And those subtle kind of drops, as well as the bigger roles that you've played, to, to see, you know, a gay out person just being themselves in a show. You weren't there to be gay. You weren't there because you were gay. You were there because you're George Takei. And it was just it was just brilliant. It is brilliant. I think you're kind of an unstoppable force, which is why Allegiance is about to, uh, you know, hold the stage for 13 weeks, which is just, it's just amazing. I'm very excited about that. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm an Anglophile and uh, I've been coming here regularly. I was, uh, Brad and I were here uh, last last year as well. And then we couldn't come. But now I'm here with our musical, and I am absolutely thrilled to be here with that rationale. So, George, for our listeners, what can they expect from the show? Well, it is a musical, but it's also rooted in uh, real events that happen. When uh, I told people that we're doing a musical about the internment, one of our dear friends, a Japanese-American, said, a musical on our suffering, on our imprisonment? I can't believe you're doing that. And then I told them what my father said. My father was a block manager in both camps that we were in. And he said resilience and perseverance and uh, the will to survive isn't all teeth gritting, muscle flexing strength. He said it's the strength to find beauty in ugly circumstances. It's the strength to create your own joy and happiness in an ugly situation. And he said, as a block manager, he said, he saw teenagers with nothing to do and some getting into mischief. He said, we've got to give them something to enjoy about their imprisonment. And he negotiated with the camp command to borrow a record player to be brought over to the mess hall after dinner on rare occasions and uh, play uh, or uh, have a dance for the teenagers. And our barrack was right next to the uh, mess hall. And so I remember, my mother put, put us to bed, but I remember hearing the big band sound of the ni- uh, 1940s, uh, Tommy Dorsey and Benny Goodman, uh, that music wafting over from the the, uh, the mess hall, and I dropped off to sleep with those uh, uh, sounds. And so uh, I still relate to uh, the 1940s music, Jimmy, uh, uh, Tommy Dorsey and, and Benny Goodman. And 
he said, we have to make our sense of community. Everybody, some people were depressed, others were seething, others, their marriages were stressed. And my father said, he, sometimes he had to act like, a, 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 do the job of a marriage counselor. But he said, we need to build a community here. People are all into their own suffering and pain. We need to build ourselves as a, a group of people. And uh, he was a baseball player in San Francisco before the war. His Japanese American team played other Japanese American teams around the Bay Area, San Jose, Oakland, Palo Alto. And so he negotiated again with the camp command and uh, the materials to build a uh, baseball diamond. And uh, my father was too busy to be a member of the team, but occasionally he was a guest pitcher. And so we all went to, to cheer daddy on. And when he struck out somebody, he said, yay, daddy, you know, or others came uh, to root for their cousin or a root for their brother. So that that created a, a sense of uh, community. And in a musical, we need production numbers. And we do have production numbers that is truthful. We have a number baseball and there's a song and dance number there, or we have a a mess all dance a number and they really did happen so yeah. my father's idea of resilience meant surviving for a purpose not just muscularly surviving and then you know dying we, are, we want to uh, survive this horrible uh, situation because there there's that joy or there's that beauty that we can produce by ourselves. I think I think that's really beautiful and a really inspiring way to uh, round off the episode. I think it's a message that can be taken by so many. And you and you're right. We need to we need to focus more on living rather than you know focus on dying. And I know that's easier said than done. You know when you come from a place of privilege or when you're kind of in a place of security. But it's true. Even in the darkest darkest corners and pockets, um, there's always a way to find joy. So my final question for you. George, to round off on a real high is, other than writing a musical called Allegiance, what is one piece of advice you would give to those people out there to find that moment of joy for themselves? As my father said, we do it ourselves. We're not going to uh, wait for the uh, camp command to do it. We take the initiative. And it's the same with everything about life. With uh, the LGBT issue, you know, you don't wait for somebody to come to our rescue. We have to be out there engaged. And I came out because of those brave young souls, the, the uh, gay liberationists that worked when I was still protecting my career. It was they that did the tilling of the soil to make it possible for me to finally feel comfortable coming out. It wasn't, I mean, I, I was 68. It was these young people that were my mentors showed me how to get, come out. And believe me, it was a joy coming out and to feel completely full. I mean, uh, uh, the real me, not just uh, an activist on these other issues, but as part of my life and to be out and engage for my life and to be able to go to gay bars freely without the surreptitious sneaking in and to enjoy the talented gay people that we have in our community and go see their presentations. And now drag shows are family entertainment. People are taking their uh, young teenagers to drag shows. So the world is, is much richer, that much fuller, 
and more diverse because we are open to the infinite manifestations of our humanity. You're, you're so right. That that corridor is getting wider and wider by the day, and we're uh, we're all outside the door now. We're outside, we're free, we're running around a field, we're heading to the nearest gay bar, um, we'll, <laughs> we'll see you there. So, George, we want to say a massive thank you for joining us today. It is an absolute honour to sit down with such a legend and just, we're, we're both pretty big nerds um, and we're both so excited. You use the word icon. Icon, yes. Yes, but there's a way of, another way of saying it, icon you. <laughs> <laughs> icons to do things for you i yeah. con you into do, doing your conning make this a freer richer more vibrant society George, you have so many inspiring words thank you so much and i can't wait to see allegiance in january honestly thank you so much for bringing it to london so that we can enjoy it here oh, and spread the word about this book i have out right now called they called us enemy. This is me. Is this a, your new book? This is my new book. Yes. You, you, you've written like three autobiographies. Where do you find the time to do books, musicals, acting, everything? This is why you have an icon status. We've established. Well, I wrote two books during the uh, quarantine. During you know everything was cancelled during the pandemic. All my speaking engagements were cancelled. The productions were cancelled. Everything came to a halt. All this time, most people would say, oh, well, we'll just sit back and relax. I said, I could be productive. And I yeah, <laughs> writing my book. Brilliant. Well, we look forward to the constant uh, content that George Takei brings to the world. We will be seeing you on stage. We'll be reading your books. And well, hopefully all our listeners will do as well. As we say on Star Trek, live long and prosper. Do not forget to let us know you've listened to the show on social media. We are on Instagram at queer underscore talk and on Twitter, we are queer talk underscore. Until next time. Bye. bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.